0: Well, good morning, church family. It's, it's really good to be here with you guys today. I've been, I've been blessed this past week with some encouraging reminders of uh, just of God's mercy and grace, and I, I hope you have too. Um, I'm really excited to see what sort of fruit that God is going to produce in our church as a result of looking at the early Christians and, and how they lived out their faith. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And uh, while you're flipping there and the kids are finding the bingo pictures, um, I, I want to share with you that this message is the first of three, and they all go together, and I hope that all of you that are listening today are going to catch the next two, because e- each one is on just two verses, and they're all pretty straightforward and practical, uh, so I, I really hope that you're all listening. Um, hear this, friends, and, and I want you to weigh the truth that you hear and how this applies to you uh, personally, Okay. And I, I think it's super important for us to understand just what was going on in the early church. And you may say, well, why? Why is that important? Because the early church was on fire. They were on fire for Jesus. And and I think I think that they were so they were so eager, so passionate to live out their newfound faith. And, and so I I think that, that by reading the Bible's description of what they actually did, we're able to determine what some of the true marks are that that show uh, uh, whether an individual or a group of believers even has has really experienced faith in Jesus. Now, now to be clear, okay, I'm not saying that, that a person isn't saved if they don't show these qualities. But I am saying that having these qualities is a good sign that the Holy Spirit is actively working because this is how he manifested in the early church, and I don't think that the Holy Spirit changes. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever, this is the spirit of Christ. So, does that make sense? Are we all? okay? So, we're going to read today's passage. Would you guys stand with me, please? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Father God, I ask right now in Jesus' name that we will be good soil. Please, Lord, put your word in us. Let those seeds go deep. We pray that they will take root and bear fruit, Father, for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start with these first few words because that just kind of makes sense. Um, The believers devoted themselves to four things. And we're going to look at those things, but but first I want us to just check out this phrase right here. The believers. Well, who's that? Those who believe, right? Okay? (laughs) So what do they believe? They believe in Jesus. They believe the gospel, right? But, But we'll get more specific in just a little bit here. But yes, they have a living, active faith. In Jesus Christ, how do you know? I mean, what does that look like? I'm, I'm going to throw out kind of an unorthodox comparison here. Uh, I, I asked a friend of mine if this was if this was a weird comparison. Um, so I'll throw them under the bus if they if this is a bad comparison. You guys can blame them for that. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, here's the thing: How many of you have seen a kid getting ready for Santa Claus on Christmas? How many? you heretics. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Don't worry. Not going to blow anyone's cover. Okay. Just, but, but folks watching a child get excited about something is fun, right? I mean, just watching their little faces light up, you know, how do they act when they're excited? They're they're so pumped. You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're stoked. They, they believe, you know, they're getting, they're getting milk and cookies ready. You know, they've been watching their manners, you know, trying to be good. They're, they're expecting a visit, Right. Presence, right? You know, that's that's, that's, so, so despite the spurious nature of said elven legend, um, do you see why Jesus said we must become like children to enter the kingdom of heaven? Do you get it? When you think about it that way, and now, now, make no mistake, okay? Childlike faith does not mean childish. Faith. He doesn't expect us to be gullible, okay? There's nowhere in the Bible that we are commanded to have blind faith. Our belief isn't based in a fable. It's not. It's it's based in in all kinds of eyewitness testimony in scripture. It's based in logic. It's based in in experience. It's even in, in, in empirical science agrees with scripture. I'm not talking about theories. I'm talking about what we can observe, okay? But having faith like a child, that, that means trust. That indicates having humility and reliance on the Lord to take care of us. That, that kind of faith produces a certain kind of behavior, doesn't it? Like children, these, these brand new Christians were excited. They took it very seriously. And it resulted in devotion. So, so back to the text here. The believers devoted themselves. That means they committed themselves to being consistently engaged in the next four things. And I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, okay? These four things are all a part of what the local congregation does in its worship service to God. So first, the the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. Now, it's kind of unclear as to whether Luke is referring to, uh, to the teaching of the actual apostles that were in their midst like in a small group basis or when they're all together or, or, or whether it means the collective teaching of the 12 apostles, what had actually already been taught and was continuing to be taught. You know, we, we're not sure, but I personally think it's the second one because th- there's a definite article in the Greek, by the way, for all four of these, uh, these things, there's, there's a definite article, and that indicates the apostles' teaching. Okay, but, but honestly, either way, it's pretty much the same thing because all the apostles were teaching the same things. And from Scripture, we know that the, the thrust of that teaching was first the gospel. I mean, that, that's the main thing they would teach. Every time we see a sermon recorded in the book of Acts, there's at least a semblance of the gospel message. So what is that message? The word gospel literally means what? Good news. I mean, that's, that's the main thing that was being taught. The, the content of the gospel is what Paul put in kind of a nutshell in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, "...now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he named several groups of people that were eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. So so the gist of the Gospel is that Jesus, he he died for our sins. That's the key. He died for our sins, and then he literally raised from the dead. But his death also Literally paid for our sins. Now I wanna you know, I, I don't like it when people use the word literally incorrectly. Okay? When people are like, Dude, I literally just died last night. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know, but I'm using it the correct way here. Jesus' death paid the price for our sins. So that God could forgive him. I mean, forgive us, not forgive him, sorry, that God could forgive us for our sins. He he had to have a death in order for his his just nature. You remember, God is both just and the justifier, right? According to Romans. He had to do that. He couldn't betray his own nature. So he had to provide a payment for us. And then upon dying to purchase our forgiveness Jesus was buried in a tomb and then he rose from the dead and he appeared and was seen by several hundred people so there you go that's that's the basic gospel message but we have to believe it we must believe it paul says that that the gospel he says right here it's the gospel in which believers stand and by which we're being saved if we hold fast to the word that was preached to us and he says the same thing a bit more succinctly i think in romans 1:16 you guys know i love this this verse He wrote this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. So, the gospel is non-negotiable. If you reject the message of salvation, you reject salvation itself. The good news isn't only, though, for the sake of unbelievers who hear it so that they'll come to faith. Because sometimes I think we think of it that way. You know, that we preach the gospel so that the unsaved will come to Christ. Well, yeah, of course. Of course that we want the unsaved to come to Christ. But it's also a reminder to every believer that it is by God's mercy that we are able to be forgiven. Because we don't deserve forgiveness. You know, in God's great love that, that he, he poured out on us, he poured out his wrath on Jesus. We can't forget that. He poured out the cup of his anger against sin on Christ so that we would be spared if we turn away from our own path and turn to him in faith. And we need this. We we believers, we need the gospel. We got to hear this every day. You know, we, we got to, this got to be constantly impressed on us so that we don't fall into the trap of, of thinking that we're somehow earning our salvation by being good, you know, or somehow that we're paying recompense for our own sins. That. That's not how it works. We don't do that. Really, that, that is to believe that is a snare that spiritually wastes people. We need the gospel to remember that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So, uh, secondly, the apostles' teaching contained other important doctrine that would keep the people from rejecting the truth of the gospel, whether in their hearts or by their actions. And there's, there's really, like, the whole rest of the New Testament, you know, there's a lot of doctrine there, so we're not going to sit there and, and go dig deeply into that today. But um, except to say that, that, that really sound doctrine is important because the more accurately we understand who Jesus is and what God did through him, we're going to see more of what God is like and how we're supposed to imitate Christ, okay? So this very important stuff. Right doctrine is important, okay? We see what God expects of us when we study the Scriptures. Part of the reason that we read Scripture so frequently from the pulpit, that is the Apostles' teaching. This is important stuff for us to, to grab and, and wrap our brains around and, and instill in our hearts. Right doctrine leads us to a biblical worldview, and that's hugely important. And as a result, we, we, should, we should desire to conform to, to scriptural morals, you know, honesty, integrity, sexual ethics, all of that kind of stuff. But the gospel is first. Responding to the gospel and being made a new creation in Christ must come first. Because a, a pastor friend of mine once said, If we could just convince everybody outside the church to stop lying, fornicating, and and getting drunk, we'd have a bunch of honest, celibate, sober, lost people. And that's true. Because being a Christian doesn't happen through behavior modification. It comes through faith in Christ. And then the Holy Spirit takes care of the behavior modification through that wonderful lifelong process called sanctification. I just want to make that clear. Saying, if anybody is is thinking to themselves, you know, I'm I'm just I'm not ready to confess my faith and be baptized yet because I just I still mess up a lot. That's really like saying I I don't want to go to school because I don't know how to read. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's putting the trailer before the truck. It just it, it doesn't make sense. The gospel comes first. Come to Jesus and then you grow in Jesus, not the other way around. Okay, come to Jesus. Then grow in Jesus. On a related note, uh, the apostles' teaching is, or, or at least it ought to be, what, what every congregation today is hearing from the pulpit. Today we, we practice, we as a church, we practice devotion to the apostles' teaching by reading and preaching from God's word and applying it to our lives. So two, we, we are committed as a church to the apostles' teaching. Anyway, so, so they also devoted themselves to fellowship. I like the word here for fellowship, the Greek word. It, it, it's, it's kwanonia. Can you say that with me? Kwanonia. I just like how it sounds. It's a good word. It, it's a pretty great word, and it, it's, it's used in a general sense to refer to fellowship. But here, having the definite article before it in Greek, okay, that, that means it should be translated the way it is, the Fellowship. So what are we talking about here? I think what we're talking, it's, it's talking about congregational interaction. It's talking about being together in our worship services, among other things. Now, what does that mean? Okay, not to put too fine a point on it. I'm looking at the camera right now, for those of you watching on, online at home. Um, but, but this is what we typically call going to church. Okay. That's what that that is. Now, now y'all, hopefully you know this, okay? The church isn't a building. If this church burned down tonight, and by that I mean this building burned down tonight, the church would still be fine. That's us, right? You understand that? This is a building. We are the church, right? Okay, we're all on the same page on that. Good, okay. It's... we also, we tend to say, I'm going to church, right? But, but the service isn't church. It's a worship service. It's our service of worship to God. But that is not the church. We are the church. The ecclesia, the gathering. That's where the word iglesias, you know, uh, meaning church in Spanish comes from. It's, it's that, that Greek, ecclesia. When the church gathers together, the interaction that we engage in as a congregation, that is the fellowship. It, it's, our, it's our opportunity to engage in mutual Edification, which is just a, a churchy word that means building each other up. We build each other up. That's what we're doing. And there, there aren't a lot of scriptures, really, that talk about going to church. But the one that comes to mind is pretty confrontational. Um, and I'm going to read it to you. I know you'll, you'll probably go, oh, I know that one. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good, good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some... But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So, in context, the encouragement is that Christians meet together so that they don't drift away. So that they don't make shipwreck of their faith. Now, perhaps the reason it's not harped on so much in the New Testament is, is, at least not more often, is that in the first century, This was kinda understood. (laughs) They realized your coal stays lit a lot more easily when it's regularly in the fire. You take the coal out of the fire, what happens? It gets cold. Nowadays, there's this, there's this idea among some folks that I can worship God on my own, and I don't need a body of believers around me. You know what? If that's the case, then tell me why in the New Testament it refers to how we are to relate to one another several dozen times. I think it's probably understood that, it, that most, most Christians... In the first century, realize that you keep your, your torch lit by being in the flame. You got you to be with the other church members. And, and the, the fellowship is an important part of our worship to God, you know, because we encourage one another to, to be more Christ like and to stay the course. So, so, like the early church, let's be devoted to the fellowship. Let's be devoted to the fellowship. Thirdly, Luke says they were devoted to the breaking of bread, and literally, the Greek should be translated "breaking of the bread," which is kind of interesting. You know, meaning it probably wasn't referring to just sharing meals together. Now that does come later. We'll get into that. I think it's uh, I think it's verse forty six. We'll get into that in two weeks. But. Um, Here it's apparently a reference to the Lord's Supper. And if you're not familiar with the reason that we practice the Lord's Supper, it's covered in all four Gospels. Jesus gives his apostles bread and wine As part of the Passover supper. And he refers to it as his body. Which was given for them. And his blood. Which is the new covenant. Or sorry. The cup. Which is the new covenant in his blood. Poured out into the forgiveness of sins. And he tells them. Do this in remembrance of me. And this was not planned. But later on in 1 Corinthians. It's pretty clear. I tell you. It keeps coming up. This stuff keeps coming up. The scripture that you uh, read earlier. I was asking. I was asking Danny. I said. Hey. What was the name of that song? that had those words in it. Anyway, I'll I'll explain why that's important in a little bit here. But um, it's just, God is good. So, um, later in 1 Corinthians, it's clear that the Lord's Supper was intended to be an important part of our worship service together. I mean, it's a way that we connect with one another and with God. It's an important part. It's something that Christ himself instituted. And in our worship service here in this church, we practice that every week because we believe that that recalling, remembering the death of Christ for our sins. We believe that's an integral part of, of our worship. And it cultivates the right mindset. You know, if, if, we weren't, if we weren't confronted every Sunday by the reality of what Jesus did. And that he did it both for us and because of us. Then it would probably be pretty easy to forget. So like the early believers, we are committed to the breaking of the bread. To honor the sacrifice that Jesus made. Next, it says they were devoted to the prayers. Now, this is kind of interesting to me, um, because like the other three, this little phrase it has the definite article there. It's not just prayers; it's the prayers. So, what prayers? I mean, I'm wondering: is, is it possible they're referring to specific prayers? Now, don't get me wrong; Scripture is is absolutely just replete with with you know uh, people praying off the cuff. There's a lot of that in there, but I think, and I think we're supposed to do that too. Um, we have a prayer time set aside, corporate prayer time set aside on Sundays so that we can, we can pray as a body for specific things. And, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think that's a very good thing. It's part of our, our Christian duty and privilege to pray for one another. But why the prayers? And I, I just, I can't help but wonder, do you think maybe they had some shared common prayers that everybody knew? Who grew up Catholic in here? Anybody? Really? Nobody grew up Catholic in here? Oh, one. Okay. All right. well, so, do you know this? Bless us, O Lord, for these thy gifts, do you remember that? Which we receive from thy bounty through Christ our Lord. Amen. That is the, the typical meal prayer for a Catholic family. Okay? Or if you had any kind of Christian upbringing at all, then you probably know, say it with me, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, a bunch of you knew that one. It's a common prayer, isn't it? Jesus himself teaching his disciples how to pray. It's interesting, though, if you think about the fact that all of the early Christians were Jews, they probably had some shared prayers that they knew, too. How many of you guys are familiar with the Babylon Bee? Any of y'all? A few of you guys? I love the Babylon Bee. It's, it's a satire website that's, uh, that's run by generally Christians, and I'd like to share part of an article I found on there the other day, so, so don't worry. If you don't get why this is satire, it's okay, okay? We're going to talk about it. The title of the article is Worship Leader Wishes God Would Have Just Left Us Entire Book of Worship Songs. While attending a worship leaders conference Tuesday, local worship leader, Jake Freebird Watson, lamented that God didn't just leave the churches of the world a whole book of worship songs to employ in corporate worship. Watson stated that if he had been in charge, he'd definitely have inspired an entire book of praise and worship songs expressing a wide range of emotions and declaring various truths about God. I'm not saying we'd have to sing them all the time, but it would have given us a whole bunch of songs to draw from, Watson told another worship leader attending the conference as both sipped iced macchiatos in between sessions. He could have put it right in the middle of the Bible for easy access. The songbook wouldn't, wouldn't have to be exhaustive either. Maybe just slap like 150 tunes in there and just call it a day. <laughs> Y'all, I got a kick out of this. Uh, because what songbook did God give us? The book of Psalms, Right? Did you know that the first song we did this morning, the very first line is right out of Psalm 115, verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And the next three songs that we did were almost verbatim from Psalm 136 and 130. Didn't know if you knew that. And the other one that I was trying to remember was the psalm that you read this morning. I was going, what was the name of that one? And, And what's that? Oh, sorry. Um, so basically, the the whole book of Psalms was a book of poetry and and poems and prayers that were set to music, and some of them were also. This is something they were written to the tune of other songs that were apparently common back then, and some of them been like easy listening because you know their titles are like like the ones written to the tune of lilies. Or to the tune of the dough of the morning. You know, but others were apparently like a little bit more hardcore. There's at least four others that were written to the tune of like, do not destroy which I'm like, what is this like metal? What are we talking about here? But but on a side note, be really careful about assuming whether a certain style of music can glorify God or whether it's offensive to him, okay? Because God cares about two things. He cares about the words that are sung, and more importantly, He cares about the hearts of those singing, not about what instruments are used and whether you can mosh to it. God doesn't care about that, okay? That is not relevant. What He cares about is, does this glorify me? Or are the people glorifying me with their words? I mean, with their hearts. So, just saying. Anyway, uh, I would argue that we are not praying just during prayer time. I think that we pray through songs of worship and praise to God. I mean, because we are, in a sense, we're devoting ourselves to the prayers by praying through music. And I believe the early church did that a lot, very much the same thing. I mean, they're reciting these, these poems, they're singing songs corporately, you know, they're, they're engaging in that aspect of worshiping God together, but, but just to put this out there, we shouldn't conflate the word worship with just music, okay? Because it's not. Worship is a lifestyle, but it ought to include music, right? Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing your praise to the Lord. Anyway, it's a biblical thing to sing to the Lord. We're commanded to do it in a whole lot of places. So, just to recap, the early church did, and the modern church should, be devoted to these four aspects of worship. The teaching of God's word, the gathering together of believers, the Lord's supper, and the communicating with God via prayer and singing. Okay? Okay? Now, God's spirit was at work in the church, and so let, let's take just a few minutes. We're going to look at how he was working and how that can apply to us. Verse 43 tells us what God did among them, which was probably both the cause of their devotion and I'll bet it continued as a result of their devotion. Because again, Luke says that, that there was awe on every soul. And I, I was intrigued by this translation, oh, awe. What, what does that mean? So I, yeah, I went to the Greek to see what the word translated Awe was because I had a theory, and and I'm also a nerd, um, but the theory was correct. Anybody want to guess what that word translated awe is? Not the Greek word, the English word that it would normally be translated as. Anybody? Who said that? Who said fear? There you are. Oh, you have the notes in front of you. <laughs> but you knew that. Okay, cool, cool. You know, I mean, I was, I was fixing to say, come on, just guess. The worst could happen is you'll be publicly shamed. Um, so, this, you know, phobos. It's the word for fear. It's where we get the word phobia. Yes, that's the word. Phobos is the word translated awe, literally meaning fear. Now, that's a concept a lot of people struggle with, right? I mean, understandably. Because obviously, those who knowingly reject God and turn their backs on His grace and have chosen to be His enemies, they should fear the consequences because eternal damnation is not a fun subject, but it is one we cannot ignore. Okay. But for those who do have faith in Jesus Christ and thus have crossed over from death to life, then then why fear? If you're a child of God, then, then why would you have fear of God? Well, folks, it's the good kind of fear, okay? It's a deep respect, reverence, humility, and, and a healthy fear of being disciplined for intentional disobedience. I mean, if, if, any, if anybody ever had the right to say, I brought you into this world, right, <laughs> who would that be? God, right? God, you know, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. you know. But, but this is good fear. It's, it's good for those who belong to Jesus. It's the kind of fear that, that we should have towards a loving father who has high expectations for us and yet would lay down his own life for us. If you want to see a good example of this kind of fear, take a look at the prodigal son in Luke 15. Which prodigal son, right? I'm talking about the first one. He's coming back to his father. He's repentant. He's broken. He's coming back to beg for a position as a servant. But his, his father's reaction is just, it, it, it's one of uninhibited grace. It totally defies protocol. I love it. He, he, he runs to his son. You know, God, God responds to our brokenness by healing, by fixing, by loving, by lifting, by, by embracing But he, he is also, and we can't forget this, he is a consuming fire that destroys his enemies. In the end, and this is a sobering truth, in the end there are only sons and enemies. There is no in-between. Either sheep or goats. just bear that in mind. So fear God now, and you don't have to experience the other kind of fear in the end. Now let's, let's bring it back to the text. Uh, the fear that they experienced was apparently a result of seeing God's hand doing stuff in their midst. Now we see a really good example of that with Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, but that's a ways off. Uh, there's there's some, some things that God was doing, and, and guys, there's a distinct advantage to having God's hand at work in an obvious way. I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, right? Like, wouldn't it be awesome if we saw God performing miracles all the time? I mean, but remember, remember this, okay? God is sitting here doing these, these wonders, and he's not sitting, he's actively doing wonders and signs through the apostles, and these are indicators that point to God. Remember, some of these miracles that we read about are pretty spectacular, you know, like, like raising people from the dead. That's a pretty big deal, Right? And it's easy to feel that sense of awe when we're in the middle of all that, right? But I think sometimes we, we lose sight of the power of God. You know, friendly, especially, we live in a really affluent part of the world, you know? We have, we have good medicine. We have a, a relatively sane government. And, and I don't think that we see miracles as often. And sometimes we forget how big God is. Because most of our needs get met through the everyday apparatus. We don't see God doing these spectacular things. And sometimes, probably worse than forgetting how big he is, we forget how holy God is. And we get caught up in that whole Jesus is my homeboy mentality. And we kind of forget the fact that that God is big and holy. And if we have a sense of awe instead of a sense of awe, that is a problem. We have to recognize who God is. It has to matter. Listen, church, maybe we're not looking hard enough. Maybe we're not taking this seriously enough. But I think if we just say, let's be like the early church. Let's try to be let, let, let's let's try to be like these Early Christians who set an example by devoting themselves to the things of God. And when we do this, and our hearts and our eyes are open, I think we're going to probably end up recognizing God working. I think we're going to see it a lot more often. You know, we're not often privy to the kind of miraculous signs, you know, the, the wonders, the, the cosmic things that they had back then. But God still does do miracles. His hand is still working in our midst. I mean, think about this. Uh, Whenever a person undergoes conversion from non-faith to faith, that is a miracle. Do you understand that? That is a miracle. That's a sign of God working. I I mean, without God revealing the truth to us, how can we grasp it? And some of the stuff that we believe As Christians, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, I bet we'd have a hard time believing it, right? I mean, God becoming a human being, being born of a virgin, dying for our sins and then coming back to life. I mean, that that stuff, it sounds pretty fanciful if you're not experiencing it through faith. you got to recognize this. We're quick, I think, sometimes to poke fun at some of the things that other religions believe. Some of the stuff that we believe, we grew up believing it, a lot of us, it sounds pretty pretty bizarre until you recognize the fact that it's still true. Now, how do we know it's true? You ever heard of the Wesleyan quadrilateral? You know what, I'm not going to talk about that today. It's all right. It's okay. We should accept that it's true, all these things that we believe, because it is historical fact that eyewitnesses to the risen Christ wrote most of the New Testament. And almost every single one of them was eventually tortured and and executed. Some of them tortured to death because they refused to deny it. They They wouldn't recant their story that Jesus had risen from the dead, not on the pain of death, They knew it was true. They knew it. And hey, if that was true, then everything else that Jesus said was true. He really is one with the Father. Would God have raised him back to life had he not been telling the truth? He really is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. These eyewitnesses to the resurrected Lord wouldn't deny it, and it was the driving force behind their lives. You know, many of the early church were martyred for their faith, but the fact that they knew it was true meant that they stood on that truth. They were devoted to the truth himself because they believed it with all their hearts. And their devotion to Jesus expressed itself through their devotion to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. And to the prayers, and I hope that we learn to be that committed too. Because church, the days are evil. Scripture is very clear, and I think it's getting darker around us. And the darker it gets, the brighter the stars shine. I hope we learn to be that committed. The world is growing colder. We got to be devoted to the gathering together for worship with one another, so that we can encourage one another to maintain our faith in Christ. Now, it's possible, I look around the room and I'm not sure how possible, um, because I know most of you, but it is possible that not everyone here has made the commitment to Christ, because it's not yet been laid on your heart to do so. And I want to both invite and challenge you today to commit, You know, Peter told us last week what that looks like, He's, he, what the first steps of faith involve. If you believe, then repent. Turn away from your own sinful path and turn to Jesus and be immersed in obedience to his call. We warmed it up last night, by the way, just in case. It's warm. It's ready to go.